All right, so tonight we're going to be in Ezra chapter 4. We began the book of Ezra last week. And as I mentioned, the book of Ezra has two parts. It's chapters 1 through 6, and then 7 plus is part 2. And the books are credited to Ezra, the scribe, as the writer led by the Holy Spirit. He comes into the picture when we get to chapter 7, but he recounts for us historically the record of those captives from Judah coming back after the 70 years of captivity in Babylon, coming back to Judah to rebuild their lives, to see the nation of Israel reestablished once again, going forward, no longer with kings, but with governors and under superpowers that are over them, but going forward in the things that God has for them. And we saw how uh, Cyrus was prophetically spoken of 200 years before he was born in the book of Isaiah, the Medo-Persian king, and that when he came to power after the Medo-Persians had conquered the Babylonians, there in the fullness of time, he was led by the Spirit of the Lord to pronounce the return of the Jews to their own promised land in fulfillment of prophecies previously said. So about 50,000 of them came back from that Babylonian Medo-Persian area. History tells us there's probably like one to three million Jews that were in that area at that time. Most of them were extremely successful in commerce and very settled into their new way of life in that part of the world. But from that group, with the support of those who stayed, about 50,000 came back to reestablish the land. And we saw this, but when the Assyrians had conquered the northern tribes many, you know, a couple centuries before that, they displaced the people and brought in foreigners to live there. That's what they did. They conquered people and they'd move them around to get them out of their comfort zone and make them less inclined for rebellion and more inclined for obedience and to just go along with what the governments wanted them to do. When Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah, he did not do that. So the land basically, by God's decree, laid fallow. Just very poor people lived there for about 70 years. The vineyards and olive groves and all those things were just there, kind of laying dormant. Eventually, some stragglers would have come down from the north and almost like squatters come in and occupy those things and those places. And that was going on. So when the returning Jews came back from Babylon under the Medo-Persian decree of Cyrus, they're coming back to their own homeland, what was their great-grandparents' land and estates and inheritances, and they're coming back to reestablish what was theirs and to rebuild it personally, geographically, but also nationally, and most importantly, as the people of covenant, spiritually. And that's where we really left off last week because they were going to rebuild the temple. They didn't have the Ark of the Covenant anymore. They didn't have the showbread, the lampstand, or the altar of incense. Those things just disappeared. But Cyrus had released them some of those things from the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had taken over 70 to 90 years before. So that was pretty special. They had some of the original temple artifacts from Solomon's temple as they came back. But the walls are burned down. The city's burnt The temple no longer exists. They found the base of the original temple. And there in chapter 3 last week, we saw they came together and they laid the foundation and the people were rejoicing. And we were told on the latter end of chapter 3 that there was such a loud noise that you could hear it as far as you could imagine. And the younger people were rejoicing because they saw their future and their hope in front of them. And the older people, some of them were lamenting because they remembered Solomon's temple and they knew that just... The new day wasn't going to be in their eyes as good as the old days, and they were just lamenting and wailing. And so that's where we left off last week, and we just said, hey, whether you're younger or older, we just got to know 
Jeremiah the prophet had been led two generations before to speak to this generation that God always had for them a future and a hope, that his thoughts for them were good thoughts, thoughts of a future and a hope. And so we put that in front of all of us tonight in Jesus' name, right? We just say, yeah, everything the Lord wants to do in the human experience is a future and a hope. Jesus didn't die on the cross and rise from the grave to not give us a future and a hope. And it's always there for those who want to receive it and walk in it. And with that background, we come to chapter 4, having laid that cornerstone or laid the foundation for the temple. And there's no temple built yet, but they've got the altar built for animal sacrifices, and they're going to go forward. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captives were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed him since the days of Asarahaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah, and they troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In these first five verses, we get a good understanding why the Samaritans were so hated by the Jews in the time of Christ. Because this group of people coming against them, they're like, they're the Samaritans. This is where they really come in to the picture for us. There are these people, and we know this from the record of 2 Kings, that when the Assyrians resettled people and displaced them, the people they brought in to the northern area of Israel, they worshipped other gods. And what these people did, these displaced people that came from other parts of the Middle East, is they held on to their idolatrous beliefs, and then they embraced some of the beliefs of Israel, creating a hybrid religion, which we know is quite popular in the human experience, right? It's very popular. I tell people, you know, if you talk to me about the Lord in, in 1981, I would have told you I was a Catholic, a Christian, and some of a, somewhat of a Rastafarian, and a positive, you know, I, I just had a, uh, it was like, it was a mixed bag of tricks, for sure. But of course, the Lord brought me to a place where it's John 14, 6, and that's it. Most of us can understand talking to at least one person in our life when you're trying to share the simplicity of Christ and the simplicity of the gospel and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him to encounter someone who's like, well, we believe in God, but we don't, you know, that's kind of narrow-minded. We believe this and we believe that too. Well, that's these guys. They had some of Moses' teaching. They, they did understand certain things about it. And it's all summarized with the woman at the well when Jesus comes along to the woman at the well and he starts having the conversation with her in Samaria there. And she says, well, you know, you Jews worship here and we worship there. Who, who's right? And, and Jesus said, I tell you, the days are coming when we'll, those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. He didn't take the religious contention and the religious argument that she was using as a smokescreen for her to hide her personal life and where it was at before God. And he just simply told her, this is the way it's going to be. But this is the beginning of the Samaritans. And they are a mixed bag of people. 
They are squatters in some cases. They do feel threatened if the actual owners of the property are back in town and claiming their title deeds and starting to rebuild and redo their vineyards and their olive groves. And so they say what the world often says to the church. Let's, let's join hands. Let's, let's do this together. We believe in God. You believe in God. Everybody believes in God. And they're like, no, we're not, we're not having any of that. So Zerubbabel and Jeshua are like, no, that's, it doesn't work that way. And wouldn't you know, as soon as they said that, the real heart of these people are revealed and that from that point in time on, they tried to discourage, to discourage, to trouble and frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus. Now think about this. What was the purpose of Israel at this time? To rebuild the temple. That was their purpose. When they woke up, what's their primary purpose? To rebuild the temple. I just mentioned Saturday night. The purpose of life is to fulfill the upper call of God in Christ Jesus on your life. Like God said to Jeremiah in chapter 1, verse 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and ordained you a prophet to the nations. Everyone that comes to Christ has a divine personal purpose upon their life. Well, actually, every human being has a divine personal purpose for their life for which they're created. But you need personal faith in Jesus to be born again of the Lord to follow the Lord. And that once we give our life to Christ, we come to that place where Jesus said to Peter and Andrew, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So we follow Jesus and he says, I will make you. Now we have a transformation that all believers in Christ have where we're being transformed. That's the purpose that God has in our life, to make us more like Jesus. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose and are being transformed into the image of his son. That's a commonality for all of us. So tonight, all of us here, Body of Christ, WG, there's commonality in our transformation and growth in the Lord, and there's a universal promise for us in Christ that God, want, God will make all things work together for good as we're going forward with him and loving him. But there is a unique call on each of our lives and a unique purpose. Only you can fulfill the call of God on your life. If you're married, only you two together in your marriage can fulfill that plan that God has for the two of you collectively together because the two become one. No other married couple can fulfill your call on your marriage that you guys are called to do. They can encourage you in it. They can help you in it. But they can't fulfill it. And as it is for individuals, individual people. And even in marriage, uh, a Christ-loving woman cannot make her husband fulfill the call of God on his life. She can encourage him and pray for him, but she can't, or vice versa. A godly man cannot make his ungodly wife or carnal wife or whatever fulfill that call of God and purpose on her life. So we each have a self-determination to seek the Lord and let him work that will in our life. And if you're married collectively in a marriage, and that's where you want unity. As Amos the prophet said, can two walk together if they're not in agreement? And the answer is no, and two become one in marriage. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we're saved by faith, not of works, but we're saved to a workmanship, and that is that purpose. So in this context, there we read this, that their purpose, they had a purpose. They had started something spiritual to get this temple built. That is their purpose. And what we learn in our own life is, if we are living for the purpose of God, if that's really our passion, when we wake up and say, you know, I want to serve the Lord today, I want to fulfill his calling on my life, if, if that's you and it's, it's your passion, then you're going to have perseverance and determination to see it through no matter what's going on. 
Because what we learn is whatever the purpose is, there's opposition to it. For in this text, in verse 1, we read the adversaries were there. And in the very next verse, we're going to read that they wrote an accusation against them when they reported them to the Medo-Persians. So we have an adversary who accuses us, just like them. And the Bible tells us that the devil is our adversary. And he goes about seeking whom he may devour. And we're told to put on the armor of God and stand fast and hold the line with the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit and the things of the armor. And he is, we're told in Revelation, the accuser of the brethren. So it's super important when we think about our purposes, the purposes of who we are individually, who we are in our marriage, in our home, who we are as a church, a local church, who we are in the Calvary Chapel movement. We prayed for the Calvary Chapel movement Saturday night, who we are. As we look upon the new generations, millennials and Z generation and our grandkids rising up, the purposes that God has for them individually in their lives and in the body of Christ, projecting another hundred years ahead of us and beyond, even to when a time when they won't even be alive anymore for their generation as well. There is a purpose. We know in the church it's the gospel to get the gospel out and to function as a healthy local church in unity with the universal church and all of its beauty and diversity. But we find in our own walk and as a church family, when those things are opposed by the adversary or by accusations, we find out how much it really matters to us. Like we said when the whole COVID crisis began, if anyone was looking for an excuse not to come to church, they found it. And you talk to almost any pastor of any denomination in the post-COVID world, they'll tell you that at least a third of their congregation before COVID just disappeared. We have a very real adversary, and he wants to break our will and trouble us, frustrate us, and discourage us, just like these Samaritans were doing. And though it might seem like a physical battle, whether it's bosses or governments or neighbors or relatives, it's always a spiritual battle. So I go back to their purpose. If we really are getting after our purpose in the Lord daily, because no one's going to pursue your purposes in the Lord more than you are, and they can't do it for you or you can't do it for me. But if we really want to get after it, then we're going to persevere through these things. We are going to persevere, and that's what they needed to do. They needed to persevere. I wish it wasn't so. I mean, I wish I could tell you it's, it's uh, just sunshine and rainbows and unicorns and, you know, everyone's happy. Talking dolphins down in the bay. I wish I could tell you that. But we know in the real world, the moment you give your life to Christ, the adversary is revealed. And every step forward in the call of God, our purpose is, is being opposed by the kingdom of darkness to discourage us, to trouble us, and frustrate us. So we must really purpose in our heart to fulfill our purpose from God and stay determined and be perseverant and just having done all, stand. Just stay after it. So verse 6 we read on. So all the days of Cyrus up until the reign of Darius. Now, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, also Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabel, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, 
and the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes in this fashion. From Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of the companions, representatives of the Dinanites, the Afrasathites, the Tharpalites, the people of Persia, Erech and Babylon, Shushan, the Havites, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnifer took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and the remainder beyond the river and so forth. This is a copy of the letter that they sent him. To King Artaxerxes from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river and so forth. Let it be made known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come up to us at Jerusalem and they're building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. Let it be now be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Now, because we've received support from the palace, <laughs> that's government workers, in case you didn't catch it. I'm not against government workers. I'm just saying they live off government things, and so this is what they do. It was, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, and you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city. It's, harm, it's harmful to kings and provinces, and they have incited sedation within the city in former times, for which cause this city was destroyed. That's, that's true. Verse 16, we inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the results will be that you have no dominion beyond the river. That's not true. That's baiting someone to create fear. Fear of loss of revenue, actually, too, the way it's framed. Verse 17, the king sent an answer to Rehum the commander, to Shimshai the scribe, to the rest of their companions who dwell in Samaria and to the remainder beyond the river, peace and so forth. The letter which you have sent to us has been clearly read before me, and I gave the command, and a search has been made, and it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings and rebellion and sedation and have been fostered in it. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over all region beyond the river and tax tribute and customs were paid to them. Now that would be like David and Solomon. Now give the command to make these men cease that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. So that's a government decree. Verse 22, take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the hurt of the kings? Boy, they framed it just right, hadn't they? You know, just framed it just right. Governments love power and they love money doesn't matter who's in charge of the government. It's human nature. Verse 23. Now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum, Shimshai the scribe, and their companions, they went up and hasted Jerusalem against the Jews by force of arms and made them cease. Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, the first few verses of this chapter and the last verse that it ceased, those are kind of the key verses of this chapter. This whole story is more a summary of some of the things that went on for 60 years, a 60-year time period, where there was this ongoing conflict with the Samaritans. This story really sets up what was going on in the time of Zerubbabel, then in the time of Ezra, then in the time that Esther saved her people in, you know, in the palace back in Medo-Persia, and then in the time of Nehemiah, when he came back to rebuild it all. In fact, our timelines are this. Zerubbabel is 538 to 516 BCE. He led this group. 
Esther is 583, excuse me, Esther is 483, so you know, 20 years, 25 years later, 473 BCE. Then Ezra is 458 BCE, 457, followed by Nehemiah 444 to 425. These kings that we read here, Artaxerxes and these guys, they were all different kings of the Medo-Persian Empire during that time. Cyrus starts it out, and then this Darius, this is where it gets tricky because there was a Darius, if you know the book of Daniel, he mentions a Darius. He's the Darius when Daniel was delivered by the lion. He's the king that grieved throwing Daniel to be fed to the lions. That's not this Darius. Two different Dariuses. In fact, there's a third Darius later on in the timeline. It's kind of like those northern and southern kings when they're calling themselves Jotham and Joshabam and Jotham at the same time. It gets a little tricky. So we're really looking at like an 80-year time period, 60 to 80-year time period where these events are unfolding. And as mentioned previously, I find it ironic that Buddha and Confucius lived at the same time in the East. I just think that's like, oh, that's random. Not to mention Socrates and Plato lived at the same time in Greece, shortly on the same timeline as Nehemiah. So these people that have these philosophies that so influence our world right now lived at the same time from the East and in the West, that I, it's crazy. Like, it was like a little 100-year period. All this crazy stuff was happening on planet Earth. And the Jews are supposed to rebuild the temple. They didn't look anything like Solomon's temple. And they've got a purpose and a plan. They're supposed to give back to work. But they abandoned the work by force of arms, which I think we can all relate to. It was one thing to have threatening mandates during COVID. would be quite another if, if, you know, the California National Guard showed up at church, Right? I'm pretty bold about, we're going to sing, no one tells us not to sing. Well, if the California National Guard showed up with weapons, I'm thinking, well, maybe we can sing in our homes. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, we're all human beings, right? Threat of physical force and incarceration is a pretty powerful threat. I'm really bold, you know, I'm like, yeah, no one tells us we can't sing. (laughs) If the National, if the California Guard was here, I'd be like, Let's try a scripture reading tonight, and then we'll think about singing. That's what force of arms does to people. We, we all understand it. It's a bully tactic. And it worked. It worked for them. Now we read on in chapter 5. Then, and isn't that the way it always is with the Lord? When there's adversaries and contention and governments are flexing on the kingdom of God. Then, because God's always going to have the final say. Then. God's going to always move through his prophets. Then God's going to always speak a word of encouragement. Then God's going to always get his people back on track. And then there are always going to be certain women and men who will risk their lives and do it. That then's a big word right there. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophets prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. The prophets of God were with them, helping them. So here we go. Now we got a, we got a momentum shift. That's how it works. You know, life is momentum. You know, life is, life is good decisions, consistency, discipline with good decisions, and then momentum of building things up. And, you know, you really go forward. You look, again, Pastor Chuck in the Calvary Movement. His consistency, his discipline, his faithfulness, day after day after day after day, 20 years in the Foursquare movement, then here in this area as, as a, just a 
independent pastor, really, that Calvary Chapel on Huntington Beach, and, and then it just all took off. But what happened with the Jesus Revolution was momentum. And it was momentum from consistency and faithfulness and discipline of Pastor Chuck. And all of a sudden, it just took off. So now you've got Lonnie Frisbee, Greg Lloyd, and all these guys showing up, and the Spirit's pouring out. 20, 30 years of faithfulness and consistency. Pastor Chuck never changed who he was as far as his faithfulness to the Lord. As a shepherd, he was ready for it, and it just, they outgrew the building over there off Sunflower, and then they outgrew, you know, then they, the tent, and right, and then a thousand churches everywhere, and it just, but it was momentum. And they always say that, often say that ministry is, a, a God uses a man or, or a woman, and it becomes a movement, but then it becomes a machine, and then it becomes a monument. That's why there's 20,000 denominations on planet Earth. Most of them are a monument to something God did in a previous generation, but are a remnant of that. But momentum is important. We see it with like businesses and sports teams. If you don't adjust, you can be on top of the world, and then you can just go way down in the, in the pitch. You look at Colorado football, right? Yeah, worst team in college football two years ago, a year ago, and Deion Sanders comes in, and that guy's a winner. He's a Jesus guy, and, and, no, and nobody's going to man, Deion Sanders is awesome. And he, he's like, now do you believe? Change the whole script line. But Deion Sanders is carrying over his momentum that what he established at Jackson State when he was coaching Jackson State in, down there in the south in like the F, FCS League below Division I. If you watch the Amazon special on Deion Sanders and his love for the Lord and how he's going about things, he did things a certain way, and he's, he's got momentum, and he's in the new football rules of NCAA, you can transfer, and you don't have to sit out of here, and he, he brought his people, he brought his kid, who's Sh Shanur is an incredible quarterback, and now, now look at on the national stage. Listen, Colorado football is not just the biggest story in uh, college football. It's the biggest story in sports right now. It's momentum. Full stadium student body rushing the field last Saturday. Momentum's important in life. In Zig Ziglar's book, See You at the Top, it's an all-time classic, I love the Lord. He talked about the well of water, and you got to pump it, pump it, pump it, and you got to put in the work, but then once the water's there, you just, shh, shh. But if you let it go, the water goes, eventually goes back to the water tablet, and you lose your momentum. Life is momentum. And that's why it's so important that we stay after consistently and faithfully with discipline those things of the Lord. Because if you leave it alone, all that momentum that God's established will just go like that. And that's what happened to this generation. They lost all their mojo. Mighty Mo is really good on your side. But when you lose momentum, you lose that inertia of all the hard work you've done, and that's how businesses fall apart. That's how Bed Bath & Beyond goes under. That's how Jeffrey the Giraffe no longer exists with Toys R Us. You, you don't adjust, and you built something, but you got to maintain it. you got to keep bringing in the right people. Get the mojo going. See how we're going younger in worship? we got momentum. We're reaching the next generation. That's what we're going to do. And you older people are going to give them wisdom, and you're going to give them encouragement. We're, we got, you know, we're... We got, we're, we're, we're getting mojo, and we're going for more mojo, and that's how it works. It's really hard to come from a dead stop and rebuild something. Colorado had one win last year. Dion just brought in, primetime just brought his mojo with him from Jackson State, and he's just taking it to another level on a bigger stage with his top athletes. 
It's my vision to see worship generation go forward with momentum on another level in a new generation. That's why I like hanging out with Jonathan Lori or Artie Reyes and these young people, these young pastors. Get a call from a pastor up in Washington State, was one of my Bible college students 20 years ago. Hey, I'm about to transition me to become the senior pastor. Are you available? Of course I'm available. Let's get some mojo going here. See, like, see, the naysayers would say they're just waiting for the Calvary Chapel movement to fall apart or just continue to fragment or something. Like, no, let's, I can't take everyone else's house, but this is our house, and we're going forward with momentum. You can't do my momentum for you, and I can't do your momentum for you. But we need momentum. So whether we're coming off a dead stop or we've got a little bit of mojo, we got to get the mojo and turn up the mojo. And that's what's fascinating to me with these, these people in this generation. They lost all their mojo. They were dead in the water. In fact, Haggai the prophet said, oh, man, boy, Haggai, <laughs> well, we're not doing a study in Haggai, but I'll just tell you. God said, look, you guys, first Haggai assessed the situation. He goes, you know, you guys, you, you don't care enough because you're, you're remodeling all your homes. You're putting in new floors. You're putting a new backsplash in your kitchen. You're doing an add-on. You're doing ADUs, you know, additional dwelling units in your backyard. Yeah, you guys are all, you're just rolling, man. You're, you're down there at floor decor, and you just, you got new floors. And that's what God said to him. And Haggai's like, you guys aren't worried about the house of the Lord because you're, 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 you're making your houses really nice. You're like redoing your bathrooms, making the doors wider. You guys are crushing it. But you guys have neglected the house of the Lord. So put your house on hold and get those supplies and go down to Home Depot and do this and do that and rebuild the house of the Lord. Get back on track with spiritual things. And don't be lost with the temporal things. That's what Haggai said to them. Pastor Chuck's son-in-law, he was married to Jan. I forget his name, but I'll never forget what he said. He died of cancer about 20 years ago. Was when I was early on on staff. And I don't even know the context. I just remember what he said. He said, you know, the last five years of my life, I've been completely distracted with all my remodeling and all these, in my home and all this stuff down there in South Orange County. And now I'm dying of cancer. And I wish I would have put that same energy into the kingdom of God instead of a house I'm leaving behind. I never forgot that he said that. And then he was in eternity. And that was that. They were distracted. And you know, when the government says, don't show up because we're going to make life hard on you, it's easier to be distracted, isn't it? And if, as long as you've got a nice house or you've got a good job, which is pretty challenging, of course, for all of us in Southern California, but if you, you, know, you can lose your mojo and you can lose your, you're unincentivized. But hungry people are desperate people. You get a little more mojo on when, there's a little more, when you're desperate, you just get a little more urgency in everything. Less distractions. They had been prosperous in Babylon under the Medo-Persians and the Babylonians. They'd come back, and they were doing pretty well. The vineyards were working. The olive groves were happening, and they're building their houses. They're doing add-ons and ADUs. And God said, you guys, man, for over 10 years, they had stopped the work on the temple. Over 10 years. And maybe they're discouraged because it wasn't going to look anything like Solomon's temple. Maybe the young people are excited to see the new temple 
when they began to prosper in the short term economically and that way they, lo they lost the passion for it. I mean, after all, we got to obey the government. They said, you know, don't, don't build this temple or else, you know, we need to obey the law. And then God reproved them through Haggai. But through Zechariah, he said this. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. There he is, Zechariah 4, 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? You could put the Medo-Persian kings in that title right there. Anything else that opposes the work of God. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hand shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small beginnings? When you just got the foundation laid. For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. He's the general contractor. There are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. What a powerful word. So, now when the prophet shows up and says, hey, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. He's saying, this isn't just any general contracting job. This isn't just new construction. This is the work of the Lord. This is the call of God. This is that thing that God has called us to do. In fact, you go back to what we just said back in chapter 4, where it said, to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus. This is their purpose. And they had lost their purpose. And it's easy to do. And through the prophet, Zechariah, Zerubbabel is exhorted, hey, it's been 10 years. Get down there and finish the job. Whatever you think is a mountain, I'm going to level it out like a plane. And I, I'm going to, what is in your hand is going to be completed. Don't lose faith. Strengthen your faith. And go forward. That's what you need to do. That's how it's going to be. What a great prophecy. In fact, then it says as we read on in this chapter, that, so it said that they, they were with them, helping them. So you had Haggai and, and Zechariah prophetically speaking these encouraging words to get back to work. Hey, oh, forget about your house right now. Get back to this and take care of business with the kingdom. This is all that matters. This is what matters. The temple matters. The work of God. This is your purpose. This is your calling. God provides for the vineyards. God provides for the olive groves. Verse 3, at that time, Tatanai, the governor, so now they have a new guy. Those other guys are gone. The governor of the region beyond the river and Shethar Bosnai and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them, who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? Then accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing the buildings. Man, they're not afraid. They're not afraid to sign the document. Like the, like the Constitution, man, you sign that document, King George, he's coming for you. Man, there just comes a time we say, you know what, we signed, this is our name, and this is who we are, and this is what we do, and this is where we're at. We're building this temple. But the eyes of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. Then a written answer was returned concerning this matter, and this is the copy of the letter that I sent. The governor of the region beyond the river and Shesar Bosnai and his companions, the Persians who were in the region beyond the river, to Darius the king. They sent a letter to him in which was written thus. To Darius the king, all peace. Let it be made known to the king that we went into the province of Judea, to the temple of the great God, 
which is being built with heavy stones and timber being laid in the walls. And this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. That's the observation from those who are opposing the work, by the way. You know, if people are opposing the work of God and they see faithfulness in you, let, let them say that it goes on diligently and it prospers. Even if they're opposed to it or against it or indifferent to it, let them say that, you know, you, whatever you do, do it with all your heart is unto the Lord. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. They are back on track, man. They are firing on all systems. They've got momentum again. Verse 9. Then we asked those elders and spoke thus to them, who commanded you to build this temple and to finish these walls? We will also ask them their names to inform you that you might write the names of the men who were chief among them. Uh, and thus they returned us an answer saying, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and completed. That's Solomon. But because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to, to build this house of God. Also the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried into the temple of Babylon, those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon that were given to one named Sheshabar, that's Zerubbabel, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, take these articles and go carry them to the temple site that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. Then the same Shashabar came and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. But from that time, even until now, it has been under construction and it is not finished. Now, therefore, it seems good to the king. Let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so, so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus, that if it was by King Cyrus, to build this house of God at Jerusalem, and that the king sent us his pleasure concerning this matter. Now, one thing we would say about uh, this this guy, Tatanai, in verse 3, he, he doesn't have the same hostility as these other guys, and he's right into Darius, and so on our timeline again, this Darius, his reign is 521 to 486 B.C. So let me give you these numbers again. Zerubbabel is 538 to 516 B.C.E. So now here comes Darius right on that, that timeline, the back end of Zerubbabel's timeline, who's Shashabar. And this temple is going to be done, most people say this temple is complete about 515 B.C. I just want to give you those, those, those lines just so you can, it, for, it helps me. I don't know if it helps you, but it helps me. So as we look at this passage here, these prophets encourage them. And they, you just see the boldness, like last time they showed up with their arms like, you better stop. And now these guys are like, hey, this is my name, this is where I live, this is what I do. We are the servants of the Lord. See, once, once you know that you're doing what the word of God says, and if you're being attacked for what the word of God says and how the Lord has led you, then you can stand. And it's, it's, it's the Lord's to work through. We belong to the Lord. And church history is filled with incredible men and women who knew the word of God, believed the word of God, had the call of God on their life, and they went out and did what God called them to do. We just got to, I'm sure I speak for all of us, we just appreciate the courage and the boldness of these, these men and women and their families and what they did, and they weren't afraid to stand up to bully government. But when the Lord reproved them for, for making excuses not to do a difficult work, they got back on track, regained their momentum, and got to back to work to do it, and it's a beautiful thing. 
Now, chapter 6 is the response, so we need this to wrap it up. Then King Darius issued a decree, and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. And at Akmatha, in the palace that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found, and in it a record was written. As thus. So this record was not existing in Babylon, but evidently this other place it was where they took their summer retreats to avoid the heat. And this is where that scroll, this record, was found to confirm what had happened under Cyrus. In the first year of King Cyrus, verse 3, he issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations of it be firmly laid, its height 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits, with three rows of heavy stones, one row of new timber. Let the expenses be paid from the king's treasury. Also let the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple, which is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and taken back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, each to its place and deposited in the house of God. So there it is. That's the decree. We already read about it in the end of Second Chronicles. We read about it in the beginning of this book. Now Darius finds this decree, and the law is the law. Verse 6. Now therefore, Tatanai, governor. So this is what Darius is writing to Tatanai. Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shesar, Bodznai, and your companions, Persians beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. Let the work of the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of the Jews for the building of this house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from the taxes on the region beyond the river. It's so great when God fights your battles. This is to be given immediately to these men so they are not hindered. And whatever they need, young bulls, rams and lambs for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, oil, according to the request of the priest who are in Jerusalem, let it be given to them day by day without fail that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. So God just totally worked in Darius's life. Where he's like, hey, I should get these guys praying for me. This is the Lord. I should get behind this. Also, I issue a decree, verse 7, that whoever alters this edict, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected and let him be hanged on it. And let his house be made a refuge heap because of this. And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it or to destroy this house of God which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree. Let it be done diligently. Man, it's just so good, you know, when you're obedient to the Lord and you have courage in the Lord to do what's right with the Lord, to fulfill your calling in the Lord, how he just fights our battles. Like, not only did he confirm that legally they were allowed to do this in the first place, but he, he added to it to give him favor to have the supplies he even needed to do it. So if they're worried about the cost and supply chain and those sorts of things, here's the most powerful man in the world saying, give them whatever they need. So the previous thing was like, oh, the previous king, Artaxerxes, oh, I'm going to lose my tax base. This king's like, hey, you give them the tax base because God's going to bless them and have them pray for me and my boys. And the Lord, the Lord is so good. It just reminds us body of Christ, WG, it just reminds us that if God be for you, who can be against you? And to obey is always better than sacrifice. And to just do the best you can in faith to go forward as you feel led the Lord is going to always be the right thing to do. And, and God gives favor. And if for some reason there's disfavor, you know he's redirecting you. But I just love this. Verse 13. Well, here's Tatanite, the governor of the region beyond the river, Sheshabarbazni, and their companions, 
diligently did according to what the king Darius had sent. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophecy of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which is in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. That's how we get BCE 515, 516, by harmonizing what we know from the timelines of these kings. Then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered sacrifices at the dedication of this house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. They assigned the priests to their divisions and the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem, as is written in the book of Moses. And the descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves. All of them were ritually clean, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity, for their brethren, the priest, and for themselves. Then the children of Israel who had returned from captivity ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward, toward them to strengthen their hand in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. It's interesting they see, say the term king of Assyria because that's really like a, even reflecting on how far wide-reaching wide the Medo-Persian Empire had become. They, they were over all that came before them. The, the Medo-Persian Empire was, all, they encompassed all that land. So the past being overrun by the Assyrians, the past being overrun by the Babylonians, and here this king, this Medo-Persian king, gives them favor, authority to prosper and be fruitful. We're going to always love to see anywhere in the Bible that they finished it. Right? Verse 16. We're just going to always love to see something that they finished it. We want to get started on the things of God. And the, and the first step of faith is the most important step of faith because that's the one that puts us in motion. But once you begin your journey, we all know it's easy to get discouraged. And this story is a story about how they were threatened, bullied, and discouraged, and stalled in that work. But God was for them, and he sent those prophets to reprove them, exhort them, and encourage them. And then he blessed them and gave them favor and confirmed them. They did it. They built it and they finished it. And just a reminder to us that a job well done is a job well done. And a life well lived is a, it's a, it's a panoramic legacy of a life well lived is really a life where in the chapters and sequences of life, that's who you were as a woman. That's who you were as a man. Or in a married couple, whoever you share the journey with, it's, it's steps of faith, new experiences, new lessons of growth with the Lord, refinement by the Lord, and a completion. A sealed fruit, like Paul said to the Romans in Romans 15. A sealed fruit. But there's always a new adventure. You see, we finish one thing, sealed fruit, finish well, and then we begin a new one. And like when Paul said to the Romans, when I delivered this gift to Jerusalem, he said this concerning the historical records in the book of Acts, but he said it in Romans that he was going to deliver this financial gift. And he said, when I seal this fruit, that was the end of the church planting that we see in the book of Acts for Paul. When I finish this fruit and come to Jerusalem, then I'm going to Spain. 
See, it's new, new journeys, new adventures. But you finish well. The Lord would teach us and we teach our children and our children's children to take steps of faith and to finish well. And each definitive thing that is defined as a project or an experience of finishing well sets them up for the next thing to finish well. And it becomes the legacy of their life and our life. And I would also say when you have success and you complete things, you need to celebrate it. It says a couple of times there that they celebrate it. Well, it says they celebrate it with joy. It's a reminder to us that we need to celebrate those victories. We need to celebrate those successes with the Lord. We need to celebrate, man. We, just, like, we need to, you know, we need to, Calvary Chapel, Vero Beach just celebrated 25 years as a church, and it was a big celebration. I was like, that's special, man. I celebrate. Props to you, Jim Geller. Good job, man. Celebrate, Jim. Have a party. Rejoice in the Lord. They celebrated. They did it with joy. They kept the Passover. They separated themselves. They sought the Lord, and they had joy. And it just reminds us that in our journey, there are adversaries, but there's celebration. There's celebration when we, when we have the victories, right? And the joy of the Lord is our strength, and God wants to give us joy in the journey. And it's a joyful thing to serve the Lord. It's a joyful thing to be separated to the Lord. It's a joyful thing to celebrate the Passover and be under the blood. Like, there's joy in the Lord. This, this is like a victory parade, you know? Like, this last couple of verses is like a victory parade. What they went through, through a couple of decades... But those people that were shouting, those young millennials or Z generation shouting when that temple was laid, and then all the distractions that came, and then, you know, when they're full adults now, and they're like in their mid-30s, whatever, going like, yeah, we did it, man. We finished it. Praise God. Let's celebrate the Passover. Let's get under the blood. It's a beautiful story. Yes, and amen.